Welcome to the Do Good Radio Hour with Bluegrass Community Foundation. We believe doing good inspires good. It's the gift that keeps on giving. The intention behind this show is to encourage you by sharing the undeniable good happening within our community. One of the ways we plan to do that is by sharing the stories of nonprofit organizations across the region who are creating more generous, vibrant, and engaged communities. Tune into the Do Good Radio Hour every Monday at 2 p.m. to hear about the good that is the heartbeat of our community and how you can get more involved. Welcome listeners, my name is Kayton and I am a part of the communications team here at BGCF. This time of year is super fun here at the foundation because it is Good Giving Challenge time. For those of you who are unfamiliar, this is a week-long online giving challenge for nonprofit organizations with various matching and prizing opportunities for your donors. This year is our 10th anniversary with a running nine-year total of $11.7 million given. So we are hoping to make this year the best year yet. Don't miss it, December 1st through December 7th. Court-appointed special advocates are everyday people with a passion for helping children. Please welcome to the Do Good Radio Hour, Melinda Jamison, the Executive Director of CASA of Lexington. Welcome, Melinda. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me, Kate. We are super excited to learn more about you and your organization, but first, what led you to CASA of Lexington and how did you get involved? So that's a fun story. I was actually serving as legislative aide for Councilmember Linda Gordon, who now serves as our mayor, and one of my colleagues was on the CASA of Lexington board, and I had never heard of it, and so I found out that what CASA was was a nonprofit standing for court-appointed special advocates that works with abused and neglected children through trained and supervised volunteers. So the volunteers were doing the work. And interestingly enough, I had grown up from birth to five with my biological parents in what was like a group home with children that found themselves in that placement because they'd been removed from their homes. So when I learned more about CASA, I thought, wow, this is really a way to make a change and do something to break the cycle because child abuse and neglect is a vicious cycle if somebody doesn't step in to break that cycle. And I'd seen that firsthand from the kids that I grew up alongside. And so um, I was really passionate about that and became a donor and supporter. And then as the years continued, a position came open and he strongly encouraged, oh, you should apply. And so ultimately that's how I ended up at Casa Lexington. So CASA of Lexington has a strong and bold mission. How have you seen it be successful? So honestly, we're really a grassroots nonprofit. Just over seven years ago, we were working with two staff members, about 20 volunteers, and serving less than 100 kids here in the community. And, you know, so I'd like to say our advertising budget, big whopping zero. So, you know, we're not paying for fancy commercials or even billboards. We've been blessed to have a lot of donated or in-kind advertising, but we've really relied on grassroots or word of mouth. And so I say that to be encouraging to other nonprofits or even businesses that say, you know, we don't have large funding sources. That's okay. If you believe in what you're doing and get out there, there is a way to get the word out. And so we really relied on church groups, Bible study groups, bunco groups, women's groups, 
going to people's homes and having friends over, going to workplaces and businesses and sharing on the lunch hour or at special events. And I said for the first few years, I think some people thought I was an evangelist because I was knocking the doors down to go to any church or faith group that would allow me to come. And I can do anything from 30 seconds to I probably could go several hours <laughs> if allowed. But so I think we've been successful in getting our mission out and improving awareness. Many people still don't know what Casa is or maybe think we're a place to come get a taco, which that's not what we're doing. But I think it's gotten better in the community. And so much of that relates to word of mouth and not just our efforts, volunteers, board members, supporters, sharing with other people, one, what CASA stands for, court-appointed special advocates, and that we are advocating for abuse and neglected children in the court system. But number two, how big the need is here, because Kentucky's been one of the top states, if not the top state now for nine years in child abuse and neglect. And these aren't fun, sexy things you hear about, right? We love to be number one in this town for basketball, but not so much child abuse and neglect, but that's not a story you hear a lot about. Family court is closed, so unless you're there with a case, you often don't know what's going on right here in our own community. And I think that's important because there's lots of wonderful organizations, but it's impo important for people to know these children are right here in our community. And Casa of Lexington does serve Fayette, Bourbon, Woodford, and Scott counties. How has your mission manifested in your programming? What exactly does Casa of Lexington do? So our volunteers, they have to be at least 21 years of age, and that's by state law and national CASA standards. You can go through the training at 20. You just wouldn't be able to take a case until 21. But they go through a 30-hour training that is written by our national organization. They take an oath of confidentiality by a judge because all of the information on the case is confidential, and they are sworn. So they get a court order that allows them to get medical records, school records, drug testing records of the biological parent for the child or sibling set that they are assigned to. We run various background checks on them. And then they work with a staff person called a volunteer manager. So that volunteer manager is there to support them and guide them through the process. They're gonna go on that first home visit to meet the child or children with them. They're always at court with them. But then the volunteer writes a report where they assemble all of that information, and they're visiting the child or children at least monthly, but they also interview the biological parents, if they're step parents, teachers, counselors, doctors, and all of that goes in the report. At the end of the report, they make recommendations, and that could be termination of parental rights and let's look at adoption, or maybe the child wants to play soccer or has a need for eyeglasses. And then the judge uses that information to make more informed decisions on behalf of the children because they often never meet the kids. And what makes the CASA volunteer different than a social worker or an attorney, we're there solely for what's in the child's best interest. The social worker has to work to reunify them with their biological parents. We do not, if that's not in the child's best interest. Also, a social worker here in Fayette County, pre-pandemic, on average had 35 cases. Average case has two and a half children. So, they really have a lot of kids, whereas a typical CASA volunteer has one case, which could either be one child or a sibling set. So essentially, the CASA volunteer is solely there for the child and their best interest. So we're advocating for them being their voice, and they have a lot more frequent contact with them. 
and they tend to be a constant. So it's nothing for a child to go through multiple social workers, foster homes, placements, et cetera. Whereas we strive for the CASA volunteer to be the one constant for that child from case opening till case closure. I love your values. I was looking at them on your website. If you don't mind, I would just like to name them. Yeah, so they are sure. integrity, collaboration, professionalism, inclusiveness, resiliency, stewardship, and compassion. And what a set of values to build your organization on. Well, thank you. We spent not this past summer, but summer before on our staff retreat, the staff really spent probably about four hours really talking through how do we want to convey ourselves in the community. And we thought about to the court system that we work about, to the families we serve, the biological parents, the children, to our donors that support us. We really think they identify who we are as Casa Lexington. So thank you. I love those a lot. Nonprofits, the heart of them is their work they put in every single day. It's truly the day in, day out work that you put in. So describe a day in your life as the executive director. So my day in my life can be interesting, as you said, and sometimes I, well, majority of the times I don't get to do the work that our volunteer managers and our volunteers do of going to meet the children and, and advocating for them. And I will say before I jump into a day for me, at times I really have to center myself back on the mission and because we find ourselves doing so many different things. So I might reach out to a volunteer and say, hey, I'd really like to go on a home visit with you to see the child you're serving. And that helps me center myself back to why we put the long hours in and do the crazy things that we do at nonprofits because it's really about the children, which is our mission. And um, so that's important. Another thing I do is reach out to my staff and say, can you share a case story with me? Because I'm not directly involved in the programmatic work, but it's very important to me that we all stay focused on what is the mission of our organization. And for us, it's serving these children. But what does a day look like for me? So they vary. Sometimes they start at 7 a.m. Sometimes I might have a late start at 9.30 because it's going to be a late night till 9 p.m. Sometimes it's weekends, sometimes uh, typically always here Monday through Friday, but also sometimes weekends. But I do everything from grant writing, data collection and running numbers to see how many kids we're serving to either report to a grantor or to national CASA, state CASA or local governments. I work with all of our local city and county governments for funding to run our program. Um, different events, working on events, whether it's sponsorships or the logistics of getting contracts signed for venues, et cetera. I serve um, essentially as our human resources, I guess you can say, and doing interviews, posting jobs, bringing staff in. We have an annual staff retreat that I put together. We also have an annual board retreat that I put together. I do new board member orientations, work with almost all of our board committees, and I'm the liaison for the board of directors. When we are recruiting new board members, I work with the nominations committee to go and meet those members and go through that process. Um, I work with our donors and writing appeals to go out or a, a letter talking about good giving, for example, and sharing how people can get engaged with that and maximize their dollars by getting right. 50 cents on that $1 donation right. to serve the children stronger. Um, so things like that, definitely a lot to do with development for sure. And then overseeing the staff. So annual evaluations, uh, again, I guess that sort of falls under HR, 
helping to set the budget with the finance committee, making sure that we're on budget, sometimes paying bills or doing the fun stuff like ordering toilet paper mm-hmm. and making sure we have enough hand soap in the facility. I also do a decent amount of speaking. Like I talked about, we have that robust advertising budget over here. So always looking for word of mouth opportunities or an opportunity to go and speak somewhere. And although right now we find ourselves in a little different environment, there's still tons of opportunities to get the word out. And so we've been trying to be creative, utilizing social media more. Zoom makes it really easy to record your own videos when you never thought you could. And so making efforts like that, I write press releases and send those out. We had an event this morning at the Casa Angel Tree Lighting here in Fayette County. And sometimes I'm in our other counties of service as well. So that's a, a quick glimpse, but it could be any of those things, or it could even be something as fun as cleaning the floors and the place. So, you know, with a nonprofit, you find yourself doing a little bit of everything. I know when we moved over here, one of the board members joked that she came in and I was down scrubbing the grout. So you just really never know what you might be doing in the world of nonprofit, but that makes it a little bit magical. And like I said, we have to focus on scrubbing the grout. I was preparing us to move into a place so we could be proud of what we're doing and have a great workplace to better serve the children that we're advocating for. I love that. Well, that sounds like enough work for an entire year instead of just a day. (laughs) So, wow. Casa of Lexington fights for children in our community, which therefore creates a better future for our community. So this is a big question, but in your opinion, what is the most important thing Casa contributes to our community? Yeah, absolutely. I think Casa changes children's lives for the better. And in some situations, one of our judges here in Fayette County said on a case we had where the little boy, he was two, was adopted, said, this is a bright day today at adoption day, but it could have looked very different. And she shared that had Casa not been involved, she was afraid he would have ended up as a child fatality. And there's a lot of truth to those words that literally on some cases, not only are we changing a child's life for the better, but we literally could be saving a child's life. And so first and foremost, hands down, that is the most important work we're doing. We are changing children's lives for the the better and the beauty of it through trained and supervised community volunteers. So it doesn't require having an education background. It doesn't require a degree. And I think right now, 2020, as we talked about, it's been a little different for some and I think stressful. I think that's something we can all agree on. And I've had to stop and think for the children we serve, they live in a constant state of change. It's nothing for one of the children we serve to be in six or seven different foster homes in a matter of months, which not only is different home settings, that could be different food, different cultures, different schools, teachers, attempts at making friends. And so I've had to stop and think, wow, this has been a hard year for many, including myself. But let's look at it from the eyes of the children we serve. And when they're two years old and have been part of the court system from day one, They've spent their entire life in that turmoil and change. And so that can be overwhelming. And during 2020, when things get out of control for myself, I've had to stop and say, what can I do right now, right here to make a difference? There is a role at Casa of Lexington for everyone that is interested. It might be serving as a Casa volunteer or advocate. 
We also have a program called Friends of CASA, which is a volunteer opportunity. You only have to be 18 for this. And maybe you speak another language and you can interpret on cases. Maybe you enjoy events and would like to plan an event or help out with data collection or administrative things here in the office. For others, it might be making a donation at Good Giving or any time during the year. Um, and then also I say none of those are for you. Maybe it is simply telling somebody else what CASA is, why the work we do matters, and what the situation looks like here in Lexington and Central Kentucky and throughout the state for child abuse, child neglect victims. And I say it's time we do something to change that. So come on, Lexington, we can do better. And the perspective that you just gave is very powerful. So thank you for that. As you've said, CASA steps in to be a voice in a child's life and you literally see tangible change. Can you share a story of a particularly rewarding experience you have had seeing this kind of change while working at CASA? I'll tell you, this is an actual case. I'll change the child's name because the cases are confidential, like we talked about. But several years ago, this is one that really sticks out to me. Uh, a call came in to the social workers, which is the state appointed social workers. And it was the month of December. It was a cold December saying, we see a little boy outside walking around in only his underwear. So they went and investigated. And sure enough, found the little boy. He was six. He was all alone outside, not properly clothed. And when they started investigating, they found out that he was living with his dad, his paternal grandfather, and his paternal aunt. And the paternal aunt had left him home alone with her two-year-old twins. So we had a six-year-old little boy and two two-year-old twins left alone. And the six-year-old had wandered out of the house in just his underwear, very cold outside, and left the, the two twins inside which let's stop and think how many six-year-olds should be left alone with two-year-old babies, right? Exactly. And so um, they opened a case, a petition was filed, which talks about the alleged abuse or neglect. And in this case, it was neglect, just being left home alone. And the judge appointed a CASA volunteer to the little boy who we'll call Sawyer and a different CASA volunteer to the two-year-old twins because they were not siblings, they were cousins. So he was placed into a foster home, and when the CASA volunteer went to meet with him, it was a female volunteer, when she showed up, he called her two words. I'm going to let you use your imagination. One started with a B and rhymes with which, and then the other started with a W. So a little interesting terminology for a six-year-old. Right. And so she shared, these are not CASA words, Sawyer. But honestly, on that visit, he didn't have a whole lot to do with her. He really didn't say anything. And so she said to the foster mother, I'm only required to come once a month, but I think I'm going to start coming a couple of times a week to try and see if he'll open up to me. Because it's quite common for our kids to have seen a rotating sea of faces, and so they might not be ready to spill everything on that first visit. So she started visiting with him a couple times a week, and I think it was on her third visit, he says to her, lady and we thought improvement he's now using the word lady he said lady you're just going to keep showing up aren't you oh. and she said well yes sir you're i'm here to represent what you need and want to the judge well it was like a light went on when he heard this at six years of age he said really you can tell the judge what i want and she said yes you know that's what Akasa does and he says well would you tell that judge i'm about to turn seven and i sure would like a spongebob cake because i've never had a birthday party 
So we sure enough took care of that and a CASA volunteer can step in and, and we work with different partner agencies, but if there is a need for the child, we're able to work with other agencies to get those needs uh, fulfilled. So he got his birthday cake, but after that point, they started to develop a very good relationship. And they would take walks from his foster home down to like a little neighborhood store and chat along the way. And she had been visiting and they'd been having talks for several weeks where he'd opened up and one day they were coloring. And he said to her, please don't ever make me go back to that house that hurts me. And part of the training that we share with CASA volunteers is if you hear something that's surprising or concerning or even makes your blood boil, don't overreact because you don't want to provide more trauma to the child. So she continued coloring and said, well, what do you mean by that, Sawyer? And he said, I don't ever want to wear chapstick again. And she was a little bit confused by what this meant, but again, just kept coloring, stay calm, and said, well, what do you mean by that? And he went on to disclose that he was being sexually abused by his grandfather, his father, and a teenage neighbor that he had been left with. And when this case opened in the court system and the judge appointed CASA, they thought it was simply a neglect case. And the judge even used the language, this is a simple case that CASA typically would not be appointed on. And why we would typically not be appointed is because there are not enough CASA volunteers to serve all of the children in need. So real quick, in Fayette County last year, there were over 1,200 new cases of child abuse, child neglect, which are actual children. And the average case runs two years. So at any given time, over 2,500 kids right here in Fayette County were cases that made it to court and met the criteria to be abuse and neglect cases. But so back to Sawyer. So he disclosed this to his CASA volunteer. She was able to report it and get that um, substantiated uh, through the court system. And so this really changed the trajectory of his case because initially the plan was for he and the two-year-old twins to go back into the home. The court system thought it was simply a matter of teaching the caregivers that you don't leave a six-year-old at home with two-year-old twins. Um, he, he just had been exposed to so many things a six-year-old should never be exposed to. In the first 100 days of school, he had been like 18, but we found out that's because he was in charge of waking himself up and walking two blocks to the school bus stop to get on the bus at six years of age. And so he actually was quite bright. And to make a long story short, we advocated for termination of parental rights in this situation. And we're all for reunification with the biological parents if it's a safe and permanent option for the child. In this case, it was not. And actually his mother was not in the picture at all. His father self-terminated, meaning he chose he did not want him to return anyway. And it has a very happy ending. The foster home actually adopted. He, he is thriving. He's been in that home for several years now. He's doing great. He's in the advanced reading and math classes at school. So he really, it wasn't a matter of being behind or delayed intellectually. He just wasn't having a caregiver or support to get up and get to school. Which if you think about it, at six years of age, when he heard that class of volunteer say she was there to tell the judge what he wanted, he didn't miss that opportunity to get that SpongeBob birthday cake. But, <laughs> so that's one story. Last year, we served 625 children here at Casa of Lexington. Every story looks a little different. They all don't have quite as happy of an 
ending as that. Success looks different for every one of these stories. Some of the cases don't turn out maybe how I'd envisioned or hoped, but you have to look at at least they have somebody that they know is there for them, which they might not have had otherwise. You heard me say earlier when I was talking about reports, somebody might recommend eyeglasses for a child. We had a seven-year-old little girl here in Fayette County School System that was looking at being removed into remedial coursework. But when the CASA volunteer got involved, she realized that child needed eyeglasses, but the child thought it was normal to see a bit fuzzy. We recommended those, the judge ordered them, and within two weeks, she was moved into the advanced reading group. Education can be an opportunity for her to break out of that cycle that she was born into, no fault of her own. And I think about that. It doesn't take an ophthalmologist to figure out that that child needed glasses. It takes somebody that can spend a little bit of extra time to get to the root of the issue to see what's going on. So there are thousands of children waiting. So I would love to encourage anybody listening that's thinking about it, reach out to the office. We'll give you more information about the training. We are currently doing the 30-hour training virtually, so you can sign up for a class. To get more info, you can reach out to info at casaoflexington.org. You can always call our main office. That's 859-246-4313. Go on our website, it's casaoflexington.org, or check out our Casa of Lexington Facebook page, and we'll respond to you in any of those methods. And even if you're thinking you're interested, but right now's not the time, reach out. We'll put you on a list and let you know when we have new training classes. Hearing those stories really takes it from a statistic and into an actual person. And I love when you said your volunteer said that they were just going to show up. And I feel like that's the first step to doing good is just showing up. And so I hope those stories truly inspired our listeners and made them want to come and check you all out on all the platforms that you just said, because it's done that for me. So you all are doing amazing work, Melinda. Thank you for doing all the stuff you're doing for our community and making it a better place. And we loved hearing your story here on the Do Good Radio Hour. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. And if it's not CASA, I just encourage everyone listening to do what you can. Like Caitlin said, just show up. And maybe that showing up is showing up to the Good Giving Challenge. There are a lot of organizations that we need your support. It's a tough year. And it's tough for us because we have clients that need our services that we cannot get to without funding. So if it's giving a donation, give a donation. If it's volunteering, volunteer. But do what you can to make this a stronger, more vibrant community. Thank you. Where love happens is the motto of our next nonprofit, the Lexington Humane Society. We all love our furry friends of the world, and we want to learn more about how we can help those who need it. So please welcome... Ashley Hammond, the Director of Fundraising. Welcome, Ashley. Good morning. Hello. Hello. You are our first animal nonprofit interview, so I'm super excited. Yay, me too. So first, let's learn more about you and what pulled you into working for the Lexington Humane Society. Oh, purely accidental. I fell in love with animals at a very young age, as do most individuals, but never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I would be here and working for animal welfare, especially for 10 years. I love working um, with the ant working for the animals. I don't work with the animals. So what I do is raise money for the animals that we have here currently. Um, and we have been 
trying to think of how long, I think we have been in Lexington for over 150 years. So we are very fortunate to have the support from the community because we are, of course, a 501c3. Right. Wow. That was shocking. 150 years. That's so you're very established and obviously respected if you've been here for that long. So I was looking on your website and I saw your logo is a paw print, of course, and a heart as the bottom of the paw print. So I thought it was appropriate to ask, what is the heart of your organization and how is that brought to life through the work that you do? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. So we love to talk about adoption, pet adoption, helping end pet overpopulation by finding homes for the homeless animals that are in our community and surrounding out those surrounding our community, as well as spay and neutering um, animals and to help prevent unwanted litters. Because over the last probably 12 to 15 years, the Lexington Humane Society has implemented a spay-neuter program to help with individuals who are unable to afford spay-neuter services for their own owned pets. We have provided a low to no cost spay-neuter program called Spays the Way, and we have done over 40,000 surgeries through our Spays the Way clinic, um, which has prevented, in the last 12 to 15 years, which has prevented millions of unwanted animals. So we um, strive to let the community know that we focus on adoption, education, and spay and neutering. Great. So can you quickly, I'm curious, go through all the different types of animals you help? Absolutely. So a lot of individuals know that we have adorable puppies and adorable dogs, adult dogs. Of course, it's kitten season. So we have about I would say almost 150 kittens right now. We have adult cats. However, we also have pigs, small pigs, large pigs. We currently have a nearly 300 pound pig named Francisco, and he has been looking for his forever home for over two years. So we don't have time limits on any of our animals. Um, We have the support from the community, so we are able to continue to take care of them and provide everything they need until we find them a forever home. So they do not sit with us for a year and then their time's up. There is no time limit. Um, Along with pigs, we have seen chickens. We have had some interesting ones, um, such as a rooster. We have had an an emotional support duck. We have had an emotional support peacock that had come in. So it's very interesting. You never know what you're going to find. Watching these adoptions of these animals take place has to be so rewarding. Can you describe that? It really is. We adopt out nearly 5,000 animals every single year. So just in the time that I've been here in the last 10 years, that's 50,000 animals. That is huge. I cannot begin to imagine the number of animals that Lexington Humane Society has helped over the years since we were incorporated. I, um, and it, it speaks to the staff here because they just are so loving and so caring and um, they're here because they love the animals and they are here because they love the people that they work with. We're a very close work family and we, um, we are all here for the same reason. We love what we do. We really enjoy what we do. And our senior staff and, and most of our staff focus on all of the happy tales. 
So for example, we have um, very disturbing stories come in from cruelty cases through our, our partner agency, Animal Care and Control. Um, however, when an animal comes into animal control um, and it is relinquished by the owner or um, you know, there's a medical issue that needs to be addressed, the animal will be turned over to Lexington Humane Society. Um, sometimes that animal is emaciated, which means it is extremely malnourished, extremely underweight and they it could have been it could be the owner's fault by not feeding it could be that the animal was astray and didn't have a home um, so there are lots of different reasons but unfortunately a lot of times it's just abandonment and um, so we do see those very sad cases but when we think about the 5,000 animals a year that we find loving forever homes for it really does warm your heart knowing that this animal came to us broken and abandoned, and now it's a completely new animal. So we are very fortunate to be able to focus on those things because it, it can be difficult from time to time, but all of the heartwarming stories, um, educating the community. We used to go out and visit um, different schools and classrooms and, and groups and speak to them about um, pet care and our educating the community on adoption. Right. I was, I think you just answered this question, but I wanted to say you're more than just adoption. You have multiple other programs and a large team behind you as well. Yes, and so it's funny that you asked that question and I was so excited um, because a lot of people really don't realize everything that goes into um, an animal welfare agency. There are so many things that require administrative work, pushing papers, answering questions, filling out grant applications, doing the whole fundraising portion, doing planning events, and then that's just the fundraising side. Okay, so after that, we've got, um, and, and the donors go with that as well, and then we have our adoption programs, and then we have our spay-neuter program. We're considering opening a wellness clinic. We're not sure, it would be obviously low cost. Gosh, we just have, we just have so many other things going on. Um, we're able to take animals from outside of Lexington. So yeah, there, there, is, there is just so much that goes into everyday life here at Lexington Humane, all the way from animal care all the way down to fundraising and over to surgery right i was just thinking before i asked that question a lot of people just pigeonhole you down to just adoption and there's so much more to your organization so if you can can you just name a common misconception about humane societies that you would like to just stop <laughs> yes i would love to so all of our animals are not broken all of our animals are homeless or abandoned, but they're not broken. We do have uh, a lot of times individuals or people are worried that they only have one-eyed animals or three-legged dogs or animals that were hit by a car and they have behavioral issues. Um, that is not the case at all. Yes, we do get those types of animals, absolutely, because they exist in the world. They're going to come into our facility. So, but not only do we have those guys, we have 100% healthy animals who are ready to find a forever home. We have the purebred dachshund that someone might be looking for. We sometimes get the Shizus that come in. We do not have the resources to test to see if they are purebred. So, and to, to add to that, um, another misconception is that that's all we do is just adoption. So we have programs for the animals while they wait for their forever home. So the animals who are waiting 
for who are waiting on the adoption floor to find someone to take them to their forever home. Um, right now we have our foster care program. We have over 100 felines in our foster care program right now. Most of them are kittens. And we have some of our adoptable animals go into foster homes because an animal who does not do well in a room with 20, 30 other dogs might need some time in a foster home and then have that foster family work with us on promoting that animal to find a home because we're not in the business of euthanizing perfectly healthy animals. If they are safe for the public and they are um, interested in finding someone to love for the rest of their life, we're going to keep them around. Um, we have a 97% save rate. So we do not euthanize based on time or space. And I think that is another um, misconception. So we're talking about this love for animals and compassion for animals. And I feel like that bleeds into compassion and love for our fellow humans, this reciprocal relationship when I'm sure you see that happen and see the love you put into the animals. And then it translates to that love being into the person who comes and adopts the animals. So just describe that reciprocal relationship. My goodness. It is such a wonderful relationship. I hear stories all the time and we call them happy tales, T-A-I-L-S. I love that. And we like to hear these success stories of um, animals filling the voids in lives of individuals and families. If they have lost um, a loved one or lost a pet of their own that they've had for years and years and um, they're just trying to figure out how to cope and the house is empty and it's quiet. They um, look to an animal. An animal can fill that void and they really are your companion. Most individuals prefer not to be alone because they will be by your side regardless. So obviously you all are a community organization. You're such an asset to the community and you bring so much to the community. So I'm going to kind of combine two questions together. Sure. What is the biggest contribution you think you give to the community? And then in turn, why should people give to you because of that? I think we give the community peace of mind. Um, and I'm hopeful that that's what we give the community because if they are concerned about animals in, in, in their neighborhood or around their neighborhood, or they saw one across town, they can call and we will respond. We will absolutely help. The animals are going to continue to come in regardless of the pandemic. So we ask the community to continue to help us because we will always be there for the animals. We want the community to always be there for us. Ooh, that was good. I like that. So obviously 2020 is coming to a sweet end. So you all, I'm sure have more to do still. So what can we expect from you in the upcoming months? Oh my, we have so much going on as do as does everybody this time of year. Um, we're going to have lots of different campaigns this, this holiday season. Um, so I urge you to stay tuned to our website. You're going to see lots of different animals available for adoption. If you're looking to add to your furry family, um, puppies, kittens, cats, dogs, everything. So keep checking our website, stay up to date on social media. A lot of exciting events virtual events coming up. That's right. So you kind of already answered my very last question. I'm so sad this has come to an end, but shout out. Can you give a specific, like a specific website, social media? Exactly sure. where we can find you? So you can find Lexington Humane Society on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lexington Humane. And you can visit us on our website at Adopt love.net. Perfect. Well, Ashley, thank you for doing good. The title of this radio show, you're actually doing that in our community and for sharing your story with us here at BGCF. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Of course. You're listening to Radio Lex, the voice of the people. 
Welcome back to the Do Good Radio Hour. We are thrilled to meet our next guest, Sarah Watts, the Executive Director of Reading Camp. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm so good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Hey, thank you for being on the show. We're so excited to learn more about Reading Camp and what you do. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do at Reading Camp? Sure. Um, so I'm Sarah. Like you said, I live here in Lexington with my husband and two young kids. Um, I've been with Reading Camp for five years now, and I love it. Um, it's been a lot of fun to kind of help it and watch it change and grow over that time. Um, my background before I came to this is in teaching elementary school, and I did some research at another nonprofit. Um, but it's just kind of been neat to put all of those different little pieces into one organization that does a lot of good here and in in greater uh, greater Kentucky. I want to know more about the mission and the programming that you all do. Sure. So our mission is to provide non-traditional educational opportunities to Kentucky kids in third through fifth grade. Um, so Reading Camp was started as a program of the Episcopal Diocese of Lexington and what we do isn't religious in itself but it was just kind of started as this way of having a positive impact on this area of the state. Our main goals then are building reading skills and reading confidence. So we want kids to become better readers and we want them to feel good about themselves. We want them to feel that confidence that helps propel them to further growth even after they leave us. I love to read. So it really was an escape from me as a young girl. It's incredible that you're helping provide that escape for kids. I really think that's great. So I read on your website that more than half of fourth graders in the United States are not proficient in reading. And Reading Camp's mission is to change that statistic. Is that right? If you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. Reading is just, it it can be such a tricky thing for kids because, you know, when you're up through second grade or so in school, you're really focusing on learning how to read. And then after that, you're focusing on reading as a means to learn other things. So when kids get to that third, fourth grade mark and they're not very strong readers, they can get behind fast because the focus has kind of shifted. If you can't read well, then it's going to be really hard to catch up. And there, we find that there's just a whole array of factors that get kids behind in reading. Um, it's, it's not families' faults. It's not, uh, it's not parents' faults or really the kids' faults or the teachers' fault. It's no, it's no one person doing something wrong or not doing enough. But, you know, kids who are, most of our kids are lower income levels. So if, um, if their more basic needs aren't being met, it's really hard to focus on those higher level needs. Or if you speak another language at home, you've come to school and needed to learn English first before you could learn to read very proficiently. So that can keep kids behind. Um, And then, of course, kind of learning disabilities, there's a whole array of that. Um, So those, no matter what is keeping a child behind, we can kind of meet each kid where they are and help them, you know, kind of kick that statistic of being in the half of kids that are that are really struggling. So we were talking a little bit before this, we pressed record on this interview and you told me that you're the only employee at Reading Camp. So if I were to walk into your organization right now, what are the ins and outs of the daily operations and what's a day in your life at Reading Camp as the executive? Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, I like to say we're small but mighty. It's just me, but we have a wide array of really dedicated um, and very high quality volunteers. Um, So day to day, I'm 
I'm planning for long term. I'm planning for growth. Um, we're always looking for what we're going to do next. Um, new opportunities that we can provide, new areas that we can serve. Um, I'm, you know, looking for funding. Um, we get some support from the Diocese of Lexington still, and I, you know, it's it's invaluable. We wouldn't be here without it. But we also are always looking to fundraise and find new opportunities to partner with um, organizations that we can support and they can support us. Um, as far as the programming end, um, I'm often recruiting kids to participate. I do that work with the schools. So I partner with public schools wherever we work. So I might on an average day be talking to a family resource person at a school or calling families to see if they've been in our programming in the past, if they're interested in coming with the future and um, organizing volunteers, recruiting volunteers, kind of uh, training everyone to make sure that our programming stays really high quality. Uh, I have a fantastic board that I meet with that's really supportive. Uh, many days you'll find me actually teaching myself. Um, even when we're running a summer camp, even if I wouldn't have to be teaching, say, one of our stations, I just love to. And I, I find it's a good way to keep connected to um, kind of the heartbeat of our organization, which is the kids themselves. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't be here. So um, that's certainly the most fun part for me. But every day is different. Uh, every day has a lot of moving parts, um, but just all focused on that same mission of helping local kids become better and more confident readers. So we all know 2020 has forced us to be very flexible and to change things up with the way that we operate. So I know the nonprofit sector specifically has been hit pretty hard this year. So can you just give me one example of how Reading Camp has had to shift or pivot during this time and how you've been proud of how you have still been able to meet the needs of the community, but still be safe? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's turned our world upside down, but uh, as it has for everyone, but we had never done any online programming before, but we've shifted this year from instead of doing our after school programs, which usually meet at the schools themselves, we've done an online mentorship program where um, once a week, small groups or individual kids meet with one of our volunteer mentors via Zoom. Um, the kids, I, I, I myself delivered a package of books to each of them at their door, and then the volunteers have the same book so they can read together. And it's kind of the closest we can get to recreating what they might be doing at our programming if we were able to have our normal programming. Um, we've also really upped our giveaway game. So we had um, reading camp in a bag over the summer. 85 kids got an L.L. Bean backpack full of books and activities. Um, so we've been really proud because we've kept all everyone engaged. We've still we've still worked. Volunteers are still working with us. Um, the kids are still involved in programming. They're still getting new books from us. And uh, this year we've served 165 kids, which actually beats our number last year by 40. Wow. So serve doesn't necessarily mean the same thing right now, but we haven't missed a beat as far as getting out there and, and kind of meeting these kids where they are because the need is only greater uh, for, you know, for all the interruptions in education right now. The need is, is there. So even though we can't make it look the same, we are still at it full force. I love hearing these stories because I feel like it shows the resilience and just how innovative nonprofits are. And although it's not ideal, it just shows how innovative and resilient they are. And I really, yeah. those stories yeah. are beneficial for people to hear. 
Yeah, these organizations around us are just doing amazing things. It's really, it's been right. exciting to watch other, other folks too and get ideas and work together. Right. I think it's especially important, well, specifically at Blue Rest Community Foundation right now because it's getting really close to good giving time. Reading Camp is a participant this year, which is exciting. Yeah. So I just want you to explain to the listeners here why people should give to Reading Camp. I know people really love to hear the why behind what you do and why they should sure. give. Well, uh, I could talk numbers all day and how far we make your dollar go, but I, what the most rewarding thing for me is seeing a camper come in and then watching that same individual over time and how they grow and change. And those kids, those individual kids are what you're investing in. Um, so I want to tell you a quick story about uh, a teenage girl named Layla. So uh, she started with us as a camper, a struggling reader in third grade, and she stayed with reading camp, came back every summer uh, for third, fourth, and fifth grade. When I started, she was finishing up, I think, fifth grade, and I had her for one season as a camper. Um, she came back the very next year as a junior counselor, and she was doing so well in reading. By that point, she was helping other kids who were coming to the camp. And, you know, she did something for them that I couldn't do, which was to say, I've been there. I know how hard it is and how frustrating it is, but you can do it. And they could see that for themselves because she is a fantastic reader now. And Layla's contributed so much to reading camp as a counselor that recently when we had a board position open, uh, it's not a team position or anything. It's not something for kids, but uh, I asked Layla to be a board member. And so she's recently come on. Um, she's a freshman in high school and is a real contributing member to our board, brings great ideas to the table. Um, she understands it in a way, again, and none of us can. Um, so she is, and she is, her trajectory is just, I mean, sky's the limit for Layla. She's going to be able to do anything she wants to do. She's doing beautifully in school. Uh, nothing is going to hold her back and certainly not reading skills. Um, so when I ask for money, it's hard for me to ask personally, but then when I think there are other Layla's out there, there are other kids in second and third grade that could have that potential or they could just kind of move along and go through the motions. So the, the potential to have that trajectory like she's had is, is why I keep going and why I'm not afraid to ask for money because it's not for me, it's for all the Layla's out there, you know? Mm -hmm. What a story and power of investment and how investment really makes things full circle. I, I really love that story. Yeah. So we are rounding the corner here on the interview. Sure. We only have a short time left and I wanna make sure you say everything you want to say about your awesome organization. So is there anything you wish more people knew about Reading Camp that they might not know? I really like this question. It might yeah. allow you to say something that you might not get to say, so. Sure, yeah, I appreciate that. I want people to realize that we don't work with kids and books because that's cute and warm and fuzzy, and it is, and I love it, and I love working with kids and all of that, but we're here for the long-term gain, and I'm looking at long-term goals that some I'll be able to quantify and some I'm not. Um, but to think of the impact that being a good reader is going to have on kids long term. Um, so, you know, we work with some families whose parents have lower levels of literacy themselves, and that really limits the kind of opportunities they've had. So when you think reading camp, don't just think 
oh, free books for kids sounds nice, think maybe this kid will be the first in his family to go to college because of reading camp. Or maybe this, this kid will be the first to, you know, have this type of job that maybe wouldn't have been available to their parents. Um, I really think, I like to think of it as like an opportunity gap rather than an achievement gap that we have. Some kids right now aren't offered as many opportunities as others, and that's holding them back. So reading camp is free of charge for every kid, for every family, and that's just offering an opportunity that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So I really think that is going to have a long-term impact. And to me, even though the day-to-day -day is really fun and gives you a lot of warm fuzzies, that's not the only thing we're doing. We're looking for the long game here. So what should we all be expecting from Reading Camp in the upcoming months? We've got this Book Buddy program, the online um, meetings coming through the rest of the year, um, and I'll be excited to share more about that. Um, and then we would love to have our camps next summer, but nothing is a certainty right now. But we've got some whisperings of a bookmobile free like ice cream truck book truck situation and that sounds amazing <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so i i can't promise anything but if we have amazing support throughout the good giving challenge and this holiday giving season we are hoping to put some funds together uh, to come through in a really fun and really concrete way for kids throughout Central and Eastern Kentucky. Um, so, you know, folks give, give big and maybe there'll be an ice cream book truck coming to the areas in need, you know, locally. So I'm, I'm ready for whatever that looks like. So it sounds like you have exciting things coming up. So shout out where people can find out more about that. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at Reading Camp with an exclamation point. Reading Camp, like you're real excited. Um, our website at www.readingcamprocks.org. Okay, great. And I have one more question and I sure. have to ask this. I just yeah. couldn't resist it. What is your favorite book or series? Ooh, The Giver, uh, the older kid, young adult novel. For me, reading is about expanding opportunities and to real and fictional places. So just kind of opening up my mind to what if things weren't this way? What if they were another way? So I've always loved The Giver. I've probably read it a dozen times. Classic, classic. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for telling your story and truly investing in our children and their futures. You're doing such great work. And thank you for taking the time to be here with us on the Do Good Radio Hour with Bluegrass Community Foundation. Thank you so much. It was really, really a pleasure to talk to you today and I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. All right, everyone, that is it. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you were encouraged by the stories of good happening right here in our community. I definitely know that I am. Make sure you tune in next Monday at 2 p.m. for more good stories and the next installment of the Do Good Radio Hour.